Thank you, worship. Good to see you in God's house, and wow, it's bless you. Been quite the week, and uh, rightfully so, praying for all these concerns and fires and stuff, so let's continue to do that. And uh, actually, why don't we just begin with prayer once again. Ask God, invite God to just help us to, all these distractions to help us focus on Him and His Word. Lord, thank you that you are sovereign, that you are good, if we, as we have expressed this morning, even in the midst of all that swirls around us. May we anchor ourselves in you, our rock, the rock of our salvation during this time. Lord, in our distractions, um, still help us to focus on you and your word for us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, you can keep your finger in 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 to 11. Uh, but let me just ask you a question first. How many of you actually enjoy going to the dentist? Anyone out there? I didn't think so. Well, of course, there's got to be one person that enjoys going to the dentist. But, you know, it's not that I don't like my dentist. I have a lovely dentist and hygienist and team. And um, I've always been a bit nervous, and you're probably maybe the same as you, about going to the dentist because... You just never, never know, right? Am I going to get a cavity? It's going to be, you know, expensive. And, and the worst thing about it is, you know, then you hear, you listen to the hygienist and she asks you, have you been brushing your teeth? I hate that question, right? You know, it makes me feel like guilty or something, right? So that's just why I don't really like going to the dentist. And it actually all goes back to a story when I was, I think I was about 18 years old. And it was after the summer. And uh, after years of neglect, um, I went to the dentist. And uh, I was in for a shock because the dentist, after the x-ray, says, well, I count 31 cavities down, one for each day of the month, all right? So that was a shock, and I was absolutely mortified, and I'm not quite sure, this was such a long time ago, but I'm sure I got a little lecture from the hygienist about how to clean your teeth. And what I didn't tell them is that that summer I probably indulged in eating ice cream every other night. And I never brushed my teeth, right? This is confession time, right? And so, you know, one thing led to another, and of course I had 31 cavities. So children, do not try this at home. Good thing they're downstairs listening to this. If Pastor Dan did that, then I could, no, you cannot do that. Not good for your teeth. But you know, that 31 cavity embarrassment actually transformed my teeth health. It did. I finally got to brushing my teeth a few minutes each day, and I did one more thing. I stopped eating ice cream. Um, it's bad for me anyway, but that's another story. So brushing my teeth, you know, what does it take you? Two, three minutes a day. It doesn't seem like a lot. But when you add it all up, depending if you do it twice a day, but if you do it once a day for two or three minutes, you know, that's like 12, 18, 24 hours in a year. And you add it all up, and it has, it's, it's, it's actually a significant investment with a positive outcome, right? I never had 31 cavities all at the same time ever again. I went for long stretches without cavities. It was wonderful. On the other hand, it is easy to spend time 
on rather unproductive things in your life, like eating ice cream, etc., at bedtime. And that only takes a few minutes of, of the day to indulge in wolfing down a bowl of ice cream. But when you also add it all up, the damage can be devastating, right? It was obvious for me anyway. And so the impact of some of the verses that Peter talks about is found in 1 Peter 4, 3, where he says, For you have spent enough time, he says, in the past, doing what pagans do, those who don't follow the Lord Jesus, living in debauchery, living in drunkenness and orgies, cause carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So Peter is talking about Christians, uh, addressing Christians who used to fritter their time away, basically doing useless things like gratifying their own selfish nature. And so Peter says, you now have spent enough time doing those foolish things. They now remain in your past. Now in Christ, he's been saying, everything changes. Everything changes, hopefully for the good. They have stopped wasting their time doing what godless people do. But the transformation is met with a new challenge. Old friends began to press on them and tempting them to return to their old ways and even making fun of them, mocking them. They may have uh, asked something like this, why aren't you showing up at the nightclub anymore? Okay? Are you too good for us? Come on, life is too short. Have a good time. And so the pressure for these former non-Christians, now become Christians, must have been immense, right? The temptation for sexual fantasies and drunkenness was powerful because there was a social life that came along with this good time living. And after all, all this old style living actually gave them a good time. And it was really like eating bowls of ice cream. It was so sweet and it was so good, so to speak, right? But the outcomes of this kind of lifestyle always led to the cavities of the soul. And so today I want to talk about the right ways to invest our time. Because as Peter says, you spent enough time doing that kind of stuff. Now in Jesus, we're moving in a different direction. We're moving in a direction of time well spent for transformation. So let's talk about these things. Number one, it is time to be willing to suffer for God's will. Let me read these verses. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human, evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Is it worth following Jesus? You know, I'm thinking about the suffering church. And I think we need to identify with them. And as I've said before, I think the church today needs to prepare for our suffering church. You just don't know. Is it worth following Jesus when we look weird 
in the wider culture. I'm not talking about being weird by being hateful against the culture, like the so-called evangelicals who stormed Congress in Washington. I'm not talking about that weirdness. If the law punishes us for our stupidity, then we probably deserve it. Peter is saying, if you suffer for doing what is right for God, good things, righteous things, honorable things, keeping the faith, and you keep following Jesus, this means you have clearly broken away from trying to fulfill your own selfish desires. If you love Jesus that much that you're willing to suffer him, count yourself victorious. You've broken away. That's what he means by you have done away with sin. Not that you don't sin anymore, but you've broken away from that trajectory of feeding your selfish desires. So he's really speaking about the quality that suffering can bring to the Christian life. We need to count the cost. The cost of discipleship and endure hardship of living this kind of life in Jesus. And so we will not be captivated again by our own selfish desires. And of course, the ultimate model is Jesus himself. He is the one who suffered in his own body, yet we know he was doing the will of God. He suffered and he died And at the moment, to the eyes of the world, it looked like this great defeat, right? This incredible embarrassment. But the scriptures tell us he was made alive by the Holy Spirit, and he was victorious over death, overcome the power of sin, and Satan was defeated. And so the lesson for us is this. If Jesus brought about such victories through suffering and death, how much more should we arm ourselves with exactly the same mental attitude? So dig in, follow Jesus, accept the fact that suffering might come. Secondly, give no more time to gratify your own selfish desires. And so we already touched on this, but let me read it again. Verses 3 to 4, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust and drunkenness and orgies and carousing and detestable idolatry. You know, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we begin to discover how God's grace can transform our life and those around us. And so, you know, we're going to get to some of those points in verses 7 to 11. But Peter also reminds us that these new Christians have spent enough time gratifying their own sinful natures, like sexual encounters and drunken parties and idolatry. And so Peter obviously is speaking to former, well, they're still Roman citizens, right? But former Gentiles who lived that way, And uh, they lived that way, and it was, in their Roman culture, that's just the way it was. It was completely acceptable. But now in Christ, new creation has begun. New attitudes and new actions need to be replaced, uh, to replace those old behaviors. Why? It's because we belong to Jesus. 
And these old behaviors now belong in the past, never to be touched again. And besides, there was really nothing productive about that old life, those past behaviors. All these behaviors were done to provide what we might call today instant gratification or a really quick fix to make you feel good, but we know it led to greater sorrow. You know, maybe our issues aren't like these extravagant Roman issues that Peter talks about, but maybe it's time for us to put away what we might call frivolous things, things that really don't matter in the kingdom of God. They might be good things, but they still dominate our lives. And think about growing in Christ-likeness to make a difference in your life, in the church, and in the world. Thirdly, those who abuse or persecute the church must one day answer to God. So Peter is thinking about the church's persecutors, helping them understand that God will be just. He will deal with them. So, verses 4 to 6. They are surprised that you do not join them uh, in their recklessness, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So there you go, right? Making fun of them. But they will have to give an account to him, that's God, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the Gospels preach even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but living according to God in regard to the Spirit. So as you know, Peter's been talking about suffering and our willingness to suffer for Jesus. And he talks about your accusers or your abusers, and they heap abuse on you because you don't live the Roman way anymore. You, just, you look like a square peg in a round hole now. And we Christians might feel abandoned by God and unable to defend ourselves as the culture shames us and makes Christians feel like misfits. But Peter's timely message is this. It is they, it is your accusers, it's your abusers, those who persecute the church and continue to do so, and those who gratify their own sinful nature, they are the ones with the problem. They are the ones who need to watch out. For one day, they must answer to God. So Peter says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You know, Peter speaks of judgment that could happen at any time. That's always been his attitude. That's the way Paul speaks. That's the way uh, Peter speaks, right? The imminent judgment of Jesus Christ. And so, of course, he's referring to the end of time, where all people, all of us, will be accountable to God who lived on this earth. And he includes those who remain and those who have already passed away, the living and the dead. In either situation, the dead or the living, they must all answer to God one day. The end will come. And because all people must answer to God one day, we are reminded that is why the gospel is preached. That's why we're called to be proclaimers of the gospel. Peter says the good news of salvation through Jesus is proclaimed even to those who have already died. Now this is kind of an interesting passage as it has been debated, but this isn't about preaching to the dead. 
It's about those who heard the gospel before they died. If they received the gospel in faith and they turned to Christ while they still live, they will be vindicated. For followers of Jesus, even for those who have already died, judgment day is actually salvation day. It's a day of rejoicing. Yes, there will be an accountability, but really it's a day of salvation, a day of celebration and, and uh, giving thanks to God for his, his gift of salvation for us. Romans 8.10 says, But if Christ is in you, even, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. You know, all of us, as you know, will physically die because of the fall. Death comes to all because of sin. But if we are in Christ, the Holy Spirit gives you life even after you die. I mean, this is extremely important, extremely important message for the Christians of that time because people were heaping abuse on them. And they were mocked for their faith in Jesus Christ. And they physically died, either through natural causes. Uh, Peter doesn't say it directly here, but maybe some people actually died because of their faith. We know that happened probably right after this letter was written, when persecution got serious. The accusers might have said something like this, however. You're no better than us. You die just like the rest of us, right? Because when you look on the face of it, it seems all the same. You end up in the dirt just like the rest of us. How are you any better than us, right? We end up being buried. What kind of religion are you following? We all die in the end, something like that. So this is where Peter comes in. Look, remember, if you're in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Resurrection always follows death. That is who you are in Jesus. We live even though we die. Just as the Spirit of God resurrected Jesus from death, if you are in Christ and if you live for him, the Spirit of God will also resurrect you to new life on the other side of death. So may that encourage you. As we anticipate the end, live a new way. Verse 7 to 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. You know, when we speak about, when the Bible speaks about the end, it doesn't mean that space and time and the universe will come to some cataclysmic end, as in everything just blows up. Rather, the end is actually referring to a completion. It's about the full redemption of creation. When Jesus returns, Revelation talks about the fact that he will come down to earth to establish, establish a new heaven and a new earth, not to do away with the earth. Revelation 21, 2 speaks about a holy city coming down from heaven, from God to earth. 
Jesus comes down to renew this world and to bring about a new creation through Jesus Christ. It is the old order of things ruled by Satan that comes to a cataclysmic end. That's what will end, right? He will meet his cataclysmic end along with his followers straight into hell. The chaotic darkness of the sea will be no more. And because of the nearness, this holy anticipation of the end, Peter's challenge for all of us is redeem the time, right? Now is the time for transformation. As you anticipate the end, of course, we don't know the end, right? We don't know when it's going to happen. But in the meantime, we don't twiddle our thumbs. We do new things. We do new things for God. We give our time to Jesus Christ. We live our lives to make a difference in a world. So instead of flittering time away on meaningless things, we're called by God to be different. And so Peter ends this section with four things that he challenges us to do. Four things we spend our time on to be productive. So, number one, be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. You know, last Sunday, I, um, I was very tired after church. Or maybe it was the hot dogs. I'm not really sure. But anyway, I was about to turn left off the church parking lot. And I failed to check right or left, right? I went out, and then this car just went right in front of me. And I hit the brakes, and I go, whoa. I hope that wasn't one of you, first of all. And, uh, I mean, I could have caused an accident, right? And um, I was far from alert. Far from alert. In the same way, we can be distracted by so many things frivolous things, and not the things of God, okay? And maybe we're not talking about, you know, talking about the things that Peter talked about, right? Debauchery and evil living and that type of thing. But even good things that have become main things in your life. And these distractions will cause you to not engage in prayer with the Lord very well, because we're distracted. Be alert and of sober mind, Peter says, so you can pray. That's pretty practical stuff, right? Why do we have a difficult time praying? Probably because we're distracted, or we're sleepy, or we're lazy, right? Those are all kinds of distraction. Those who pray, what are they trying to do? They are actually seeking the heart of God, the will of God. That's what's going on. They're changing selfless attitudes to God's attitudes. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. So the question is, do you want God to guide you? I think all, we want all, of, God, we, all of us want God to guide us, right? But are we actually asking him? And so, going back to what Peter says, 
We're not asking because we're distracted. And so we have to learn to actually stop the distractions, learn to ask, learn to hear from God, have a conversation with God. Uh, you know this verse in Psalm 37, 4, right? Delight yourself, right, in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When we pray, when we delight ourselves in God and say, Lord, your will be done, he shares his desires into your soul, right? He honors, he's pleased with those who humble themselves before God and say, dear Lord, I need your will to be done in my life. Help me to cut through those distractions and humble myself so that your desires will now become my desires. So be alert then. Be sober-minded. Understand what your distractions might be. We're all different, right? Understand your distractions so you can pray and delight yourself in God. Secondly, above all, love each other deeply. For love covers a multitude of sins. So instead of frivolous living, living to please ourselves, God calls us to invest in meaningful, loving relationships. Above all, of course, speaks about the priority of love. And we know that. Paul talks about the same thing, right? Love is the most important. Back in chapter 1, Verse 22, Peter already said this. He says, love one another deeply from the heart. He had, to, he had to add in that extra word, right? Deeply from the heart. Seems to me, even make sacrifices. It must be pure love with selfless motives. At least that's the, that's the command. Uh, we need to grow into that, of course. To love, to think about others before ourselves, ought to be our highest calling. When we are self-absorbed, distracted by me, myself, and I, we fail to love very well. And of course, that's always an ongoing challenge and battle for ourselves. That is why prayer, as we spoke about earlier, is so critical. We need God's help to love. Because it's His love flowing through us, us that causes us to love better. We need God's renewal of our souls to love better. It also says that we must love because love covers a multitude of sins. Well, that's a very interesting phrase. Now, this doesn't mean that we ignore sins. Um, Proverbs 10, 12 uh, helps us here, I believe. It says... Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. True love expressed in God's community will forgive one another. So a large part of loving is learning to forgive people and to overlook past faults of others. When we forgive and let go of other people's offenses and hurts, that have come our way, this keeps the lid on, so to speak, on past conflicts so that we stop any kind of bitterness or grumpiness in its tracks, right? I mean, we can hold grudges for a long, long, I mean, years upon years. People can hold grudges, right? 
And then it becomes part of their body, and they become grumpy people. It's dangerous. Unforgiveness is incredibly dangerous. So this is what I believe this word is talking about. Love deeply. For love covers a multitude of sins. Deal with the stuff that causes bitterness in your life. You know, churches will always be in perfect communities. I think you know that, right? We're, because we're imperfect people. But our trajectory should always be growing in love. Uh, you know, we say wrong things. Uh, we say it in the wrong way. Uh, there's misunderstandings and we get hurt. People get hurt. The other side gets hurt, you know. And so that's just the fact of community life, right? It's just the way it is. So this is why we need to exercise Love, looking into our own hearts first, maybe offering to say sorry, learning to forgive and confess our sins to one another. Offer hospitality without grumbling. So really, I think this is another form of love, right? Practical love, hospitality, uh, basically a meal, uh, a bed, um, I think specifically culturally, this was dealing with traveling Christians. Uh, no Hilton hotels and Super 8s back in that time. Okay, So in that time, um, you know, uh, it was, it was uh, expensive to travel, right? Um, many, many lived hand-to-mouth existence. Christians were in the minority. And if you're living in a hostile environment, you needed to support each other. And so this is an exhortation. Offer a beverage. Offer a meal. Offer a bed. Especially for Christians who are traveling, who might be apostles, who might be evangelists, who might be pastors, who might be fellow Christians just needing to get to next town for work, etc., etc. And so there must have been some kind of network uh, developed of you know, where the Christians lived, etc. I'm not really sure. But the point is, hey, look, I know this is a hassle. I know this is an expense to you because you can barely make enough to make your own meals, but can you make the sacrifice to love by showing hospitality to people in need? Can you do it? Can we do it, right, to the church? And of course, today it's a little bit different, but it's still the same spirit, right? If there's a need, offer hospitality to fellow Christians. And finally... Lastly, use your God-given gifts to serve each other. Each one of us, if you are born again in Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, he has given to each one of you at least one spiritual gift. And you're blessed, because you have some kind of gift to bless the church. Verse 11 says, each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone who serves, he should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, what I want to highlight here is, is the how, okay? If one's gift is to speak, um, how should that person speak? 
He says, with the, as if he's speaking the very words of God. I mean, wow, right? That adds on this responsibility on those who speak to make sure that whatever you utter is blessed by God, God's word. So, you know, whatever your gift is, uh, Peter's staying general here, but the speaking gifts are, you know, the Bible talks about these speaking gifts. These are gifts like teaching, uh, prophecy, evangelism, uh, preaching, uh, the gift of tongues, or speech that, you know, um, making sure that our speech is simply not your own opinions, but God's voice, God's ideas. It comes from His Word, or compatible with His Word. Whatever words that come from your mouth must be moved along by the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, as you know, we could talk a lot about the tongue, but the tongue can be used as a weapon. But Peter is rebuking or challenging the church. If your gift, for example, is in the speaking category, make sure that it is words that build up. All of us are flawed, okay? I mean, I'm dealing with the reality of things. I'm flawed. You're flawed. Sometimes I'll say stupid things, okay, or selfish things. But we have to make sure that our spirit is just honed in together with the Holy Spirit, that we say things that build up the body of Jesus Christ and try to do the very best in our knowledge. But most of all, you're operating under the Holy Spirit. You're a person of prayer, okay? Back to prayer again. When you're a person of prayer, it helps you to be saying the right things, without being babblers or gossipers, okay? So make sure if you're speaking, you're doing it to build the body of Christ. And the other um, gift in general he talks about is those who have serving gifts here. So he's not trying to be exhaustive here. He's talking about a couple things. But Peter says, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. I think that's a phenomenal verse there. So that in all things, God is praise. So he addresses actually two issues there, okay? We must serve not through human power. He says the opposite, of course. I, I, I'm, I'm talking about the flip side. Do it with the strength that God provides. And so those even with the serving gifts, the non-speaking gifts, you should serve in a way where you're empowered by God to do so. Walk close to Jesus, in other words. Secondly, we serve in its various forms in the church for the praise of God's glory to serve each other, and it's not for self-glorification. I mean, you guys have all heard the stories, right, of those who serve the church or serve the wider Christian community, and they're motivated I mean, maybe they don't realize it, but they're motivated for self-glorification. I want to be popular. I want to be recognized. It's about me in the end. And we get into deep trouble when we serve to get people to like us or honor us. And if we're driven by our ego, we have difficulty serving without honor. And thanks. And then we get cranky, right? That's, that's an obvious sign 
We're doing it for me, myself, and I when we're looking for the thanks. And by the way, we're human beings, and we need to give thanks to people, right? When they do a good job, um, say thank you to them, right? So that, their issue about self-glorification, that's their issue. But as far as the body of Christ is, thank people, right? Don't say, I don't want to thank you because I'll make you proud. That's a silliness, okay? Let God deal with that. Okay, so we need to say thank you to people. That's common courtesy. But you should, we should never be motivated to serve God for the praise of others, to build up your bruised ego. And um, again, as I've said before, we're human beings, and we will struggle with this. Okay, and it's something that. I have to struggle with, but this is why we need Jesus. This is why we need the Lord. This is, this, this is the stuff of your life where you bring up before God and confess to him, Lord, um, I'm seeing myself in this way too much, and you need to be glorified. Will you forgive me in this and help me to do a better job? Okay? I mean, that's just, it's this reality, the stuff we struggle with. And so none of us do it perfectly. We're all flawed, but grow in the right trajectory. Grow in the grace of God. May he strengthen you. May he give you the help to do it for his glory. And when we do that, the church is far better prepared for whenever the end is going to come. We'll let Jesus decide that, by the way. Okay? We don't have a timetable. We'll let Jesus decide that. But there's a sense of a little bit of urgency here, right? It says, don't fritter your time away. Use it to invest in God's kingdom. So when we pray, um, love deeply, offer hospitality, exercise your gifts, our time is never wasted. Isn't that awesome? If you want to invest your time in good things, there's four things right there. Invest your time wisely. As God transforms your life, we abandon self-gratification and foolish habits that do nothing for the soul, but now are replaced by new attitudes and time well spent in the right direction, new actions to build up the body of Christ. So God is glorified. Let's pray. Lord, we honor you today because you are our Savior who suffered and died and you served and you loved. You gave your life in hospitality so we could have your life, your Holy Spirit. And so I pray that in the days and weeks ahead that you would help us as a church to use the time that you've given us to be transformed within and without, to make a difference with, in our relationships in the body, but also to be a witness in our communities. And so we commit this to you. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Cool. Well, thank you, Pastor Dan.